Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 929. And I am going to begin at verse 17 and go to verse 24. Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders as he's making his way from Macedonia to Jerusalem. I pick up in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is simple. That the words of Paul to these elders in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, would be words that are spoken to us today. May we understand what our true mission is here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may know that I coach high school football. And while I've been playing or coaching football in some capacity for a good portion of my life, it was only four seasons ago when I became the head coach at the varsity level. And I'll never forget my first game at the helm. It was the unforgettable COVID season of 2020. We didn't play football that fall. No, we began practice the following winter of 2021 in 15-degree weather in February Catching COVID was the last thing on our mind. Frostbite, sure, was a greater threat. Our first game in March was against a school that was one of the best in the state at our class. They had two running backs. They had already had scholarship offers to large colleges. It was a tough draw for a first game for a difficult year for everyone. The game could not have started off any worse not only being dominated on the field, but we were falling apart on the sideline. One of my coaches severely tore all four of his shoulder ligaments as our opponent threw a 93-yard touchdown pass, and he, in anger, went like this, and, and that happened. <laughs> so there I am, my first game as head coach, the opposing team's fight songs playing in the end zone. They're celebrating. And my calm down a key coach, and my sideline is in utter disarray. And the drubbing on the field went on for what, what seemed like an eternity. We were losing 23 to nothing with four minutes left in the third quarter. Our offense wasn't moving, and our defense was just barely holding on. 
And finally, we caught a break, a fumble. We recovered. Our offense, which had been totally anemic, in two plays came to life. It scored 23-6. to We kick off. Our defense stops them. Now, well into the fourth quarter, we score again, 23-14. to Our defense takes the field again. Interception. One play later, we score again, 23-21. I looked across the, the, the field at the other sideline. I knew at that precise moment we won the game. Our side was brimming with energy and confidence. Even the coach that, that did this, he was smiling. <laughs> Our opponent, though a top team in state with running backs, committed to play at the University of Tennessee in Minnesota, they completely lost all sense of who they were. And they just came unraveled. There were seven minutes and 43 seven, seven minutes and 43 seconds left in the game, and we were down two points. What was the final score? 49 to 23. I had never been a part of a game like that in my entire life, either coaching or playing. Afterwards, I'll never forget a reporter making their way from the stands, making a beeline to me from the Daily Herald, and he came running up to me and shoved a recorder in my face. And he said, Coach, what did you say to your team at halftime? I had to stop and pause and think about that for a moment because what I say at halftime isn't anything really profound. It's not like Ronald Reagan, you know, win one for the Gipper or Newt Rockney's famous 1924 Notre Dame speech has none of that. I'm surprised if any of my players would even remember what I tell them at halftime. But what I said then and what I have said ever since goes something like this. Remember who you are. Remember who you play for. And remember what your mission is. I tell you that story Because as I read this passage in Acts 20, I hear the Apostle Paul saying the same thing to these elders from this church in Ephesus. When I read the entire account of Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders in the entirety of this passage, which goes to verse 38, beyond the portion we're focusing on today, as a coach, I hear a halftime speech. Paul, by using his own life as an example, is saying to these people, remember who you are. Remember who you live for. And remember the mission that you are on. The aim of my message to you is to allow the Apostle Paul to inspire us as he did these Ephesian elders to follow his example in making it our mission to proclaim the gospel. First, remember who you are. Verse 17 to 21. In order to understand who Paul is, he sets himself up in these verses as an example to these elders and us. We need to understand in short order how Paul got to where he is when he was speaking these things to these people. You see, Paul began as a persecutor of the church, where in Acts chapter 9, it says that he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And by the time we get to Acts 20, Paul is now on the other side of the equation, being persecuted himself. And since coming to faith on the road to Damascus, 
Paul immediately begins proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. A few chapters after Acts 9, we see then he is set apart and commissioned by the Holy Spirit with Barnabas to go out into the world, to proclaim the word of God to areas far away from Jerusalem. And one such place Paul was sent was Ephesus. And upon arriving, Paul found some believers there, discipled by a man named Apollos. In Acts 19, it says for three months that Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God while he was in the synagogue. But Paul faced opposition from the Jews in the synagogue, and therefore what ended up happening is he spent two years outside of the synagogue resorting to, quote-unquote, reasoning daily to those throughout the city. Paul's teaching about Jesus began to take root in Ephesus. It began to change the behaviors of that city and its residents. Also in Acts 19, we hear about this silversmith who made idols, figurines in the form of the goddess Artemis, and called together other craftsmen to complain when the silversmith observed that sales were trending downward. A downward shift in the demand curve for silver idols was taking place because the people of Ephesus started to put their hope no longer in these idols, but in Jesus. While the silversmith incited a riot, Paul was prevented from engaging with the rioters by his friends, and the riot was eventually quelled by a very diplomatic town clerk. Paul felt it was necessary to depart Ephesus and is making his way to Macedonia, leaving behind those that he had led to Christ personally and discipled for two and a half years. And so this is where we now pick up just prior to this passage in Acts 16, when following his time in Macedonia, Paul was hastening to return to Jerusalem. And Paul's eyes, like Jesus's, turned to Jerusalem. And with the same mindset as Christ. He knew he wouldn't be returning. So we pick up in the passage we previously read in verse 17. Paul asks the elders to come to him, and he addresses the elders, and and look at how he reminds them of who he is and who he is about. In verse 18, he puts his life on full display. Let's look at that verse. It says, And you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Through his example, Paul's encouraging these people to lead the church in the same way that he did. Serving the Lord is a full-time occupation. It was for Paul, and Paul's making the argument that it should be for us. We know from a few verses earlier in Acts 18 that Paul worked alongside others in Corinth as a tent maker. And regardless of what he was doing, whether he was making a tent or teaching about Jesus, he lived amongst those in Ephesus the whole time in the capacity of serving the Lord. Friends, it it doesn't matter whether you're working in the financial space, you're selling goods and services, you're raising children, you're teaching, you're working on a job site, you're cooking, you're coaching football, or making tents. Serving the Lord is a 24 by 7 
occupation. And according to verse 19, it will often come with tears and with trials, as it did for Paul. Look at verse 20. Notice how Paul describes who he is as someone doing ministry in two very different places. In a public setting and privately from house to house. Not everyone is going to be standing at a pulpit proclaiming the gospel. I never envisioned this moment for myself. It doesn't matter. Of equal importance to public ministry is the ministry that takes place house to house. And Paul is someone who doesn't care if he's preaching to the philosophers at the Acropolis in Athens or he's sitting down in a home one-on-one with someone who has questions. Parents, your ministry to your children in your home is equally important as was Billy Graham's ministry to millions. We must not shrink from declaring what is profitable to others, regardless of the venue. Let's look at verse 21. In the same way that Paul doesn't differentiate between where he shares the gospel, Paul is also someone who doesn't differentiate between who needs to hear the gospel. At that time, in that city, Jews and Greeks meant everyone. For Paul, he's making the distinction for the elders of the church then and for us today, everyone needs to hear the good news of Jesus. I would argue Paul knew who he was. The elders of Ephesus certainly knew who Paul was. Paul lived it out for all to see, and he is reminding them in this passage He's reminding them who he is in order for them to imitate him. Well, my charge to you is the same. Remember who you are. If who you are invokes any degree of regret, call upon the Lord right now. Submit to him. Ask him to transform your life and allow him to shape you in becoming more like Jesus. And watch what happens. Second, remember who you live for. Verses 22 to 23. It's evident throughout this address that the elders of Ephesus knew who Paul was living for. The plight of man is a battle that has taken place ever since mankind's fall in the Garden of Eden to this very moment. And it involves operating between two ends of the spectrum. Either we are living for God or we are living for ourselves. My players hear this out of my mouth constantly. There is no room on the team for someone who is solely playing for themselves. It doesn't work. I can't have ten guys running an orchestrated play and one going off doing whatever they want to do. I can't tell you how many times I've replayed the video of a play that went for zero yards because just one player didn't do what they were supposed to do. Change the behavior of that one player and the play goes for a touchdown. And I can easily produce you, for you, a hundred examples. I could produce one from last Friday. Sin entered this world through one person who desired more for what was 
in it for themselves over what was in it for the Lord. And look at Paul in verse 18. It says this. He's, he's, he says these things. I lived among you, serving the Lord in verse 19, so that he could testify in verse 20 to Jews and Greeks. This is all about other people. Leading them into repentance to God and faith in Jesus. Then look at verse 22. Look at how he followed whom he lived for. He says he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Paul's not his own man. Paul's not a self-made man. Paul is entirely a God-led man. He's a man who is constrained, guided by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him next, except that the Spirit has testified to him that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And boy, was he right. It's plainly evident that Paul was not playing for himself, isn't it? He was all about the Lord, and he was all about others. Others who needed to hear about the Lord, who needed to mature in their faith in the Lord so that they too would be about others in the Lord. Paul trusted the Holy Spirit to lead him no matter what would happen to him. How else could a rational human being make the decision he is making to return to Jerusalem and to his peril if he wasn't about living for the Lord's will and not his own will? Paul is again setting himself up as an example to the elders of this church and for us as to who we should all be living for. This address to the elders continues past verse 24 and what's our focus today, but in the later verses, it indicates that these words to these men were for the sake of building up their leadership for the church. The church cannot have leaders who are in it for themselves. The church will never grow or mature if self-interest is at play. Zero yards. And it's a broader reminder for us all that we need to embrace and live out the greatest commandment, to, to love the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Friends, I appeal to you to remember who you live for. Thirdly, remember what your mission is. Verse 24 I love this verse. Let's look at it. Allow me to read it. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm going to say it pretty plainly. Paul's mission is to proclaim the gospel. He said this to these elders of the church in order to set a standard as to what their mission and the mission of the church of Ephesus should be all about. Well, what about College Church? Take a look at that logo that's under our little Puritan tall ship that we have that says College Church proclaiming the gospel. The mission of this church can't be made any more clear, could it? But this is not just the mission of College Church. It is the mission of the church worldwide. It's the mission of God's people around the world, through the church, to proclaim the gospel. 
It's a large portion of why we exist. If we don't have this mission, who are we? After all, Jesus makes it explicit in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. It just says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's not an option. It's an imperative. Jesus is commanding us to take the gospel out into this community and into this world. Now, next week in our missions festival, Pastor Kurt is going to bring the missionaries from around the world here and bring them on the platform for us to celebrate and to pray for. And it's going to be a wonderful time. If I could do the equivalent today as we focus on our local outreach, I'd try to figure out some way to get you all up here on stage so that we can celebrate us taking the gospel out. That's how it works. There's not enough room on the platform, so I just stay in your seats and continue listening to how we're going to do this. You, me, we are the missionaries. We are the missionaries to Wheaton in the immediate area. We are the ones that are responsible to proclaim the gospel. This is our mission. I want to pause for a moment to make something absolutely crystal clear. As I sling this word gospel around, it would be good for us to understand precisely what that word means. After all, if we're to make it our life mission, it'd be helpful to be reminded about what it's all about. In verse 24, it says the gospel of grace literally means good news. Translated, good news. It's translated from the Greek word, I'm not a Greek guy, but euangelion. You means good. Angelion, which means news, tidings, and message. The good news in its most basic form is the following. God is the creator of all things, and he's a perfect creator. He's holy and he's righteous. He cannot change or conform to anything other than who he is. He's perfect and he's incorruptible. God the creator made man and he made his man in his own image. God made man free to choose to either follow God or follow self. Man chose to follow self. And he rebelled against God. And this rebellion against God is what we call sin. And man is a sinner. And our sin only, not only separates us from a holy and perfect righteous God, but, but we're condemned. We're condemned by a holy, perfect, and righteous God. And God, by nature of his holiness, he, he can't operate any other way. So we have a problem. But... I love the buts in the Bible. But God so loved the world, and he loved you, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to fully bear our rebellious sin. And Jesus was born fully human, and yet fully God. He lived a perfect life on earth and chose to only follow God and not rebel. Jesus willingly died on the cross for our sin and took it upon himself, God's wrath for our sin. And he ascended into heaven, and get this, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and now at this very moment, he is interceding on behalf of everyone 
of us who put our faith and our trust in him. We are now reconciled to God in a love relationship with him because God sees us as righteous through the filter of Jesus. This good news requires each of us to make a decision. We're either in or we're out. The author of the C.S. Lewis, the author C.S. Lewis states it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says to us, thy will be done. It's either his thy will or our will. All that are in hell, according to Lewis, choose to be there. And we who believe in Jesus, because we're reconciled to God through Jesus, we live forever in paradise. Eternal life with God the creator, creator of the universe. And no matter what this world deals with us or deals to us, cancer, failed relationships, death of a loved one, a struggling career, financial stress, it's only temporary this side of eternity. And we live in this world with a living hope of the world to come, all promised through his word, the good news. This good news has led billions of people to proclaim it, to make it their mission to proclaim it, just as Paul did. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. And if you desire a life marked by love and joy, a life of freedom from your sin, a life that is eternal, that has purpose, I invite you to ask Jesus into your life right now. It's as simple as turning away from yourself and choosing to follow him. Find a healthy church so that others can disciple you just like Truman and Ruthie were loved on by this church in that video that we just saw earlier. Someone did that to me 30-odd years ago. Changed my life. Just how important was this gospel to Paul? Let's look at verse 24 again at the first part of it. This is how important this was to Paul. He says this, But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself. If we ever wanted further clarity that Paul was not living for himself, here it is. In fact, what if he ended this statement? I'm throwing things now here. It's what happens when you put a football coach up on here. What if, what if we ended the statement right here in this verse and we didn't have the other half? This is a statement of a person in deep, deep despair. That something that, a statement that they would make. It's a life marked by a lack of mission, a lack of purpose. How many people do you know who are in such a condition? Are you? What is unique about the Christian faith is that we can make the same statement that Paul's making and be able to do so out of complete joy. We can do so because of what comes next. If only. My life is worthless If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If only. Those two words turn Paul's statement on a dime and his life on a dime. Paul is saying his life is nothing valueless apart from finishing the course. Finishing the ministry. What course? What ministry? testifying to the gospel of grace. 
proclaiming the gospel. Paul is explaining to these elders that his life, apart from proclaiming the gospel, is meaningless. Well, fine. You might be thinking that that's Paul's life. That's not my calling. I would argue that Paul is making these statements to these church leaders so that these church leaders would make the statement to their church members. They're bringing it back to the church of Ephesus. Let's listen to part of Paul's writing later in Philemon 1.6. He writes to Philemon and he says this. To Philemon, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Here's Paul writing to an individual, Philemon, saying that he's praying that Philemon would be effective in sharing his faith with others, and by doing so, Philemon would obtain a full knowledge, an intimate knowledge of God. You see, proclaiming the gospel is a universal call for everybody in the church. It is the means by which we mature. We mature by proclaiming the gospel. We obtain a full knowledge of God through the testimony of the gospel. Just as physical maturity is marked by an ability to reproduce, spiritual maturity is marked by a willingness and effectiveness in sharing our faith, reproducing spiritually. Proclaiming the gospel is not a mission specific to Paul. Sharing our faith is a mission for all who call on Jesus as their Savior. Well, okay, fine. You might say that you're not equipped like Paul. I don't feel equipped at times. Can we walk? Did you come out of the womb walking? Barring a disability that prevents us from doing so, we all eventually learned how to walk, didn't we? We might not remember our own journey on how to walk, but downstairs in Kids Harbor, we see this process taking place right before our very eyes. Right there in the toddler room are, well, toddlers. They toddle. They fall. They get back up and they toddle more. They fall again. They get bruised. They cry. But you know what? They eventually figure it out, don't they? By doing it. How? Over and over and over and over again. Sharing our faith is no different. We just have to toddle through it. We just have to do it. If you're interested in learning more about the process that we as a church will go through to become more effective in sharing our faith, advertisement, 5 p.m. tonight, crossings, be there. We're gonna, it's going to be a play date for toddlers. <laughs> Those of us who want to get better in finishing the course that we receive from Jesus, sharing our faith. And regardless if you can or can't make tonight, while we're all here together now, let's agree to take the first step together in working to fulfill this mission in proclaiming the gospel. And the first step in the journey in proclaiming the gospel involves prayer. It involves prayer. Remember Truman and Ruthie from the video? When we recorded them, there was something that Ruthie said in that session that perfectly encapsulates the heart of this first step in personal evangelism, in sharing the gospel. And I'd like for us to hear from Ruthie herself. 
So about three weeks ago, I was doing my little Bible study on my app in the morning, and they started talking about D.L. Moody, who I knew the Institute, but that was just about it. And they started talking about how he had a list of 100 people that didn't know Christ, that he had relationships with, that he would pray for every day. And the, the part that like brought shivers down my spine were, it was like 96 of them or something became Christians in his lifetime. And the last four came to Christ at his funeral. Insanity, right? So I was like, I can pray. That seems easy, right? So I made a list, and it's not 100 people, but I think it's about like 20 to 30 people that I know, that I have relationships with, that I talk to, that don't know Jesus, that, in fact, some of them really hate him and really hate Christians. And I started making a list, and there was three girls on there that I I don't talk to very frequently. I used to work with them, and uh, I started praying for them, and my prayer for them was God create an opportunity for me to talk to them. Because for me to just bust down the door on Snapchat and be like, hey, let's talk about God, that wasn't going to go over well. Surely enough, within the following weeks, they hit me up. And were like, hey, we've been thinking about you. Hey, we're having dinner at our house. We'd love if you'd come over. And it was insane because I I did. I went over and I had dinner. And I mean, the thing that I'm learning is even the people that are like, who we work in the coffee shop and we see the Christians come in for their Bible study and they're like, we get out, nobody cares about your God, right? These are the things that these girls would say when I come to their table and I'm sitting at their table and they know I'm a Christian. They, they ask, what do you believe? Well, what does it mean if you believe that? What do you call yourself? Do you call yourself a Christian? Well, you're, and verbatim, you're the only nice Christian I know. And to that I say, well, how many do you know? And they say, not a lot. There's so much on social media and so much in the news about Christians that we're such a hateful group that when someone meets you as a Christian, they already expect you to be this kind of person. And when you're not, they're floored. And then they feel like they have to ask, well, what, what do you do if someone says this to you? Well, what do you, what do you believe? And it's these crazy, crazy situations. So God's really, really moving. And I think there is uh, a huge, like, I don't want to call it an awakening, but like some, I feel like something's really going on where Christians are rising up and they're sharing their stories and they're doing it with the love that Jesus first gave us. If we can love people like that, they, they're looking for a God. They're looking for an answer. They want to belong to something. They just don't realize that this is what they want. So can we, as a church, agree to finish the course? Can we agree to share our faith with others? And the first step, the first step in this process is beginning to pray for others who don't know Jesus. Ruthie mentioned that D.L. Moody prayed for 100. Ruthie identified 20 to 30 in her life. I'm going to make it easy. What if? Everyone in this room prayed for just one person in their life who didn't know Christ. What if we committed to pray for one person whom we know and prayed that they would come into a saving faith? By doing so, we instantly become a church that is outward focused.
Instantly. I'm told our kids' harbor staff is going to challenge our kids to do this as well. And we can't have the kids outpace us, can we? We need to be a church that's on mission. One last word. If you're here today and you are exploring a relationship with Jesus but haven't yet accepted him, these are my words to you. Isn't it comforting to know that there are people that are specifically praying for you? There's nothing more joyful for us than to see you experience love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. If we were to bottle that up and sell it, we would be billionaires, wouldn't we? And it's free for those who call upon the name of Jesus. And we're praying for you. Praying that you would have the assurance of eternal life to come and the love and joy and peace that comes until that day comes. That no matter what the circumstance of what life doles out, that you would have an abundant life, a life of purpose and fulfillment, a life that only a relationship with Jesus can provide. Well, friends, maybe some of you are already praying for others, to which I say, keep on. Keep going. I invite you to take the next steps of what it would look like for you to share your faith with others, knowing that a foundation of prayer has been laid. I, along with others in the church who've committed to this, are here to help you. Again, some of this will be outlined tonight at 5 o'clock in the crossings. But in closing, as a coach, I give you these words. Remember who you are. Remember who you live for. And remember what your mission is. The journey begins with a simple prayer for a single person. I pray that Jesus would enter their life and transform them forever. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the testimonies of others who have boldly gone before us. I thank you for the words of Paul which compel us and challenge us. And no different than an athlete on the field needs to be encouraged to push themselves. I pray that this is a moment we all are challenged personally to push ourselves for the greatest message in the universe. And we don't hold this message close to ourselves, but we go, we go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, help us in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen.